I don't know if you've ever thought about what it was like for Jesus during the night of his betrayal. I, I, I find it just hard in so many ways to imagine what was going through his mind. Because you see, all of history was coming to a climax in this one 24-hour period. Everything from Genesis chapter 1, in fact, even Peter says, before the foundations of the world, God had set in motion a plan that was now fixing to be fulfilled in and through the death of God's Son. And so Jesus has been looking forward to and dreading this moment with all of his being. The gospel writers would describe him going to Gethsemane and and having literally drops of sweat like blood pouring off of him. And I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but this occurred in the month of March or April. That's when Passover happens. And I don't know about you, but it's not real warm in the month of March and April in the evenings. And yet there Jesus was, sweating like there was great drops of blood. That's how much anxiety and anguish he was going through. And when he met in the upper room, I just think about everything that was happening all at once. I mean, he's up here first of all to celebrate Passover. And Passover is an event that remembers all the history of Israel. Went back over a thousand years. And here he is remembering with his disciples. He said, I've eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. But it's more than that. You see, not only is he remembering the past, he is also looking forward to the future. Right in the middle of that meal, he takes the bread, he takes the fruit of the vine, the cup, and institutes the new covenant. The covenant that had been promised by Jeremiah. All of that's going through his mind. When he went into the upper room, he noticed that the disciples as they came in for the most important meal they would eat for the year had not washed their feet. You see, whenever you would go to someone's house, the lowliest of the servants would be the one who would wash everybody's feet as they came in. Except in the upper room, who's the lowliest of the servants? Peter? you got to be kidding, right? I mean, Andrew, no way is he going to do it. Bartholomew, don't even look at him. Thomas, I mean, John, the list goes on and on. And as one by one they came in, no one. The water's there, the towel's there. I mean, everything to wash feet's there. No one does it. And so what does Jesus do? Before the meal is served, he gets up. He takes his outer garment off, he puts on the towel, and he goes around washing everyone's feet. I mean, you've got to ask yourself, what in the world is going through his mind, much less the mind of the disciples? And then he comes to Judas. He washed Judas' feet. The one that he knows has already gone to the chief priest. He's already negotiated the price he's going to be paid to betray Jesus. Jesus knows that. He knows that it's only a matter of hours before Judas does the most awful deed that any human being could do, literally betraying God himself. And then, of course, there's the infighting of the apostles. As Jesus sits down, he knows that they've been arguing about who's the greatest. And he's got to somehow drive that back. 
And so he begins to teach about that. And he's got so much, he, he's got to share with them just over and over again. He wants to talk to them about the Holy Spirit. He wants to talk to them about where he's going and the place he's going to prepare for them. In fact, it's 50 days. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. I mean, from that moment, it's 50 days before the church is going to explode into the world on the day of Pentecost. And these guys are not ready yet. And in the midst of all of this, as, as all of these things are going through Jesus' mind, knowing that all of the satanic forces of the universe have now gathered together in order to attack Jesus, Jesus would later that night say, there's 12 legions of angels waiting if I need them. I can call upon them and they'll immediately be here. I mean, all the angels on one side, all the demonic forces on the other, all looking to that hour in which Satan will think he will win, when in reality Jesus will save us. And, and Jesus pauses to say something. And, and, and I think it's fascinating that when you look through the New Testament, Matthew says nothing about it. Mark says nothing about it. Mark is, is most likely Peter's gospel. At least that's what most scholars, and I would agree with that. It's Peter's gospel. Peter says nothing. Paul will talk about this subject, but he will not mention it by name. And it's almost as if only one of the apostles, an apostle by the name of John, Jesus says something that catches his ear. And boy, it sears itself deep in his heart. It's found in John chapter 13. And here's how Jesus began. A new command I give you. Now, if you've been following Jesus for three years, commandments are not new. I mean, you turn over to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, and boy, what you have there is literally commandment, 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 commandment. I mean, you walk away going, wow, what a sermon. And so when Jesus said a new command I give you in the midst of everything that's going on, it's as though only John hears his words. And notice this new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. I want to ask you a question. When you see an image of Vanderbilt football, what comes to your mind? You know, I have uh, attended many, many Vanderbilt games. Uh, I, I follow them quite closely. I'm not an avid fan of any uh, college football team. People have always asked me, who do you support in Mississippi, you know, when it comes to football? And my response is, any of them that just maybe are, are winning that year. You know, I, I remember several years ago, uh, Ole Miss and Mississippi State were ranked first and second in the nation for one week. I mean, we almost declared our independence in Mississippi. We were like, it doesn't get any better than this, but it was only one week. You know. And, and I don't know about you, but every time I go to a Vanderbilt game, as I leave, the first thing that comes to my mind is, there's always next year. Right? There's always next year. And then, of course, what about this one? I mean, what comes to your mind when you see that emblem? Now, I don't know if this is true or not. I've been told. Blake told me that it's true, so it's got to be true. 
Blake says that when you're born in Alabama, that your parents have to decide whether you're going to be an Alabama or Auburn fan, and it goes on your birth certificate. Isn't that true, Blake? Yeah, and he's, he's 100% all, I mean, Alabama. I almost messed up there. Sorry about that, Blake. You know, I mean, strong emotions when you see this emblem. And do y'all remember when this used to mean something? Y'all remember that? I, I, I still remember there was a guy named Peyton Manning one time who, I mean, became the greatest quarterback probably in NFL history, if not the greatest, one of the greatest. And do y'all know he quarterbacked this team? Boy, he's now retired. It's been a long time. Now, the reason I bring up all of this is, of course, it's football season, and we don't know if there's going to be a season or not, and there's a lot of just indecision in this whole area. But every one of these images provokes responses from us. And what's interesting is, if I were to ask this question, what would someone think if they heard the name Hendersonville Church of Christ? What image would come to their mind? I mean, if we went out and did a random survey and simply said, I'm going to say something to you, tell me the first thing that pops in your mind, and then you said to them, Hendersonville Church of Christ, what would be the first image that would come into their mind? Now, I have some guesses that would probably be fairly accurate in many instances. But tell, let me tell you what Jesus would hope would pop in their mind. Notice here in John 13, this time verse 35. By this, by what? By this new commandment, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Here is Jesus saying to the apostles, saying to those who would follow them, if you want to know how you should be identified by the world, it should be your love for one another. And can I tell you that I'm afraid that that wouldn't be the first image that would pop in most people's minds. I mean, it's not what Jesus was hoping would be that which identified his people. You know, Jesus was a person of incredible love. And everybody knew it. You go back just a few chapters in John's Gospel. Go back from chapter 13 to chapter 11. Jesus is standing at Lazarus' tomb. Lazarus is the brother of Mary and Martha. He's died. And Jesus knows that he's going to raise him from the dead. He knows that. And yet as he stands by the grave and he sees the response of Mary and Martha and the Jews who have come out to mourn with them, the Bible says that Jesus wept. And notice the response of the people who stood nearby. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. There was something about Jesus that you could just tell how much he loved someone by the way he responded. Now, in many ways, you kind of look at this commandment. A new commandment? Are you kidding me? Jesus, you've been teaching about love your entire life. Ministry. How can this be a new one? In fact, if you go back just a couple of days, in Matthew chapter 22, when he first gets in Jerusalem, after Palm Sunday, and then coming back on Monday and cleansing the temple, Jesus is questioned by a lot of the religious figures, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the religious lawyers. And one of the questions is, which is the greatest of the commandments? And look at what Jesus said. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. 
This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, love is not you with Jesus. He had preached it and taught it over and over and over again. Go back to Matthew chapter 5, early in his ministry, the Sermon on the Mount. And notice again, coming off of the end of that text there in Matthew chapter 22, you've heard it, it was said, love your neighbor. We can fill in the rest of it as yourself. But Jesus said that the Jews had taken that one and notice what they had turned it into. And hate your enemy. Love your neighbor as yourself, but hate your enemy as your enemy. And Jesus says there and he says, but I tell you, love your enemies. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember especially when I was much younger, struggling with this text. How can you love your enemies? They wouldn't be your enemies if you could love them, right? And so I remember really struggling with that one. And, and, and I remember when I got into my 20s, I became a youth minister. I was a youth minister in West Tennessee. And, and I remember one night in a devotional, uh, I was trying to get some discussion started among the teenagers. And so I threw out this question to them. I said, what did Jesus say you're supposed to do? If someone slapped you on one cheek? Now, I was expecting some of the girls to answer that question, but instead, one of my guys did. He said, My dad tells me that if somebody slaps you on one cheek, turn to him and let him slap the other. And I thought to myself, Wow! I can't believe he just said that. I mean, here's this teenage kid, and he's got it. And then he said, and then dad says clobbering. And I'm like, oh, oh. Now, that's what I was expecting. That is what I was expecting. But isn't it amazing how we take even the teachings of Jesus about love and we legalize them and turn them into the very opposite of what Jesus was driving at? Now, the problem with that is a problem with, you know, how do you love someone who is literally your enemy? How do you do that? And the answer comes in the form of understanding the nature of love. You see, and, and I've preached this many times, and I want to continue to preach it because it's so foundational to who we are as the people of God. You see, we have this one word, love, L-O-V-E, and we use it to describe everything. I mean, I, I, I love to come to church. Uh, we love our family pet. We love to go on vacation in Panama City. Or Myrtle Beach, or you know, you fill in the blanks. Uh, we love Alabama football, you know. We we love well, we like Commodore football, you know. I mean, come on, you know. But but this word love is used to describe so many different things, including the relationship we have with our spouse and our children. I was with my grandson last night, and uh, we don't get to see our grandchildren as often as we would like to, but. But had opportunity last night to, to be with our, uh, our second grandson. His name is Luke. And we sat down. We were eating a picnic supper down in Cool Springs. And, and we sat down and we were talking. And I turned to my son and daughter-in-law and said, I'm thankful that y'all could, you know, meet us here because, you know, we really wanted to see our grandson. <laughs> you know, we really don't care if we see you at all, but we really want to see Luke. And they said, we get it. We understand. You know, we love him. 
And, and that love is very different than the other loves I've described. And, and the Greeks had a way of understanding that. They actually didn't have one word. They had four different words. They would talk, for instance, about family love, Greek word storge. And, and family love is natural love. You know, doctors don't have to take a new mother and teach her how to love that baby that has been born. She does it naturally. Fathers do it naturally. They have this natural affection that would cause them literally to give their lives for this new one that they don't even hardly know yet. But that's family love. It's the love you have between your brother and sister. I was talking to my sister this week, and we never end a conversation on the phone without me saying to her, hey, I love you, and she's saying to me, I love you. Family love. And then comes, as we get a little bit older, what's called philia. Philia is friendship love. It's the love that you have when you're in the second grade with your best bud. You know, you love to go out, you play on the playground, and, and you have these things in common. And friendship is all about commonality. I mean, I still to this day, my roommate from college is still one of my best friends in the world. He lives up in Clarksville, and, and we talk almost on a weekly basis. You know, we, we just began so many years ago, and it's just continued. He is my friend. And then we have what's called eros. Eros is romantic love. Eros is that love that you have. I mean, I was, I don't know, 18 years old. And, and I was in, in class. I was actually not in class. I was in what was called the annual club. I was in this organization where we would, you know, put the annual together there in our high school. And I looked over and I saw this young girl from the Beach Hill Church of Christ just a few miles away by the name of June Williams. And my heart went, bum, 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 bum. And then just started getting faster and faster and faster and faster. And now, 41 years later, you know, here we are. I mean, I love her and she loves me. Romantic love. But then there's agape. Agape is different. Agape is not so much about emotions as it is about a decision of the mind. And that's the word that Jesus used. I mean, he talked about God, divine love. It's when you see someone as being created in the image of God and that likeness of God causes you to care about them, not because your heart is pity-patting for them, but it's because your mind says this one is created in the image of God and to reflect God's nature, I must care for them. And that's what Jesus was teaching. He had taught throughout his ministry, about this agape love. Again, back in Matthew 22, what is agape love? It's what it is to love God. You use agape there with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And it's the same love that you have for your neighbor. And so, once again, how is the new commandment new? What's so different about it? And the answer is real simple, and it comes in the last part, verse 39 of Matthew 22. You see, all the way through here, the standard of love for me is me. Notice what he says here. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all of your heart. It's about what you think you should love him with your heart. It's about your mind. It's about your soul. And when you love your neighbor, you love him how? You love him the way you love yourself. Now, unfortunately, some of us don't love ourselves very well. 
And you see that in the way people respond to me and you. I can tell how much somebody loves themselves by how much they love me. And sometimes it doesn't even exist. And that's where Jesus came in and changed it. Jesus says, can I tell you that the measuring stick of love is no longer you? It's not how much you love yourself or anyone else. It's how much Jesus loved. It is Jesus' love as demonstrated in his life. And that's why the New Testament and the Gospels in particular are so important. Why do I need to know about Jesus the Messiah? I need to know about the stories because in them is demonstrated this remarkable love. A love that would go to the house of a tax collector. Now I want you to think about that. In the first century, these were the most hated people in the Jewish community. Here's a man by the name of Matthew. Have you ever noticed why his name is Matthew? You see, his real name is Levi, named after the one of the 12 tribes. I mean, Levites were those who worked at the temple. Levites were those who take, took care of the sacrificial system. They're the ones who helped the priest, the Levites. And here's a young man who was named when he was born Levi. But no, 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 just call me Matthew. Because you see, he's a traitor. He's a tax collector. And most Jews would have absolutely hated him. Not Jesus. Jesus not only loved him, but he went to his house. There was a party there. And you remember the story how the Pharisees are all outside looking, going, why in the world is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? Because he's demonstrating love. You have a story in both Matthew and Mark of a man from the land of the Gadarenes. It's one of the saddest stories in all the Bible. It's about a man who has literally a legion of demons living in him. He lives in the tombs. He runs around without any clothes on. He cuts himself with rocks. I don't know if you've ever been around someone who cut themselves. Cutting yourself is, is an incredible form of just terrible turmoil and pain that's going on within a person's body. And, and if you've ever worked with someone who does that, you, you just feel how much anguish they're going through. And here is this demon-possessed man, and Jesus literally gets out of a boat, and he comes running down the hill. And I have to think that Peter and Andrew, James and John, all of them were pulling back thinking, Jesus, it's time for us to leave. But Jesus instead... Ask him a question. What's your name? What's your name? And he begins a conversation that ends with him saying to this man, go back home and tell everyone what God's done for you. And then there's the story of a woman. A woman who was engaged literally in the act of adultery, drug out of the bed, carried to Jesus, humiliated before the world. Lord, the law says she must be stoned. What do you say? And it's the only time that Jesus ever writes in the dirt. And he writes in the dirt and they keep demanding, Lord, what do you say? And finally Jesus turns to them and says, The person who is without sin, let them cast the first stone. You let that sink in. Now Jesus wasn't saying that there shouldn't be punishment for sin. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that those who punish sin should at least be people who are doing it rightly and justly 
not as a way of getting at someone else. And his response to the woman is, where are those that condemn you? There are none, sir, and neither do I, but leave your life of sin. But if you want to understand Jesus' love, you ultimately have to go to the cross. And you have to see Jesus as he's hanging there, having been lifted up, and out of his mouth comes these words, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And can I suggest to you that I pray that those are the words of Jesus to his Father when I mess up. Father, forgive me. Because he's having no way he's doing. You see, the love Jesus had for me, for you, is a love that was immersed in mercy. It was a love that said, I'm going to do whatever it takes if it means dying on a cross, humiliated and shamed in front of the entire world so that you can be brought back to the one who created you and let him restore that image in you. That's what ultimately God's love is. Jesus would say it in a very simple way from Hosea 6.6. Go and learn what it means. I desire mercy. Sacrifice. Wait a minute. God, you commanded sacrifice. Oh, yes. Got a whole book called Leviticus all about sacrifice. But Jesus would say, that's peripheral when it comes to true love, which is always immersed in mercy. I pray that this week that you'll think about, memorize, and reflect on the love that Jesus had for you. And by the way, if you want to know what kind of love it is, then just remember that old song you were taught when you were a kid. Won't you stand just for a moment?